Well, let's pray one more time together before we begin, okay? Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we simply come before you now and uh, we are reminded that you are a God that is constant, Lord, that there is indeed no shifting shadow in you. That is to say that there is no diminishing light in who you are. But your attributes are always and constantly um, bright and full and sure. They are always at full strength and you are always a God of fullness, an eternal God, a God that is everlasting, a God that does not become, a God that will not end, a God that was not created, a God that has always been. You are the King of eternity, the everlasting Father. And Lord, we pray that as we contemplate and as we meditate on who you are and why we have been called to know you and the purpose for which we have been called to serve you, Lord, that you would enrich our lives as we contemplate who you are, as we look at your attributes, your character, your nature. We pray that that meditation, as we focus on your being, Lord, that you would revive us as we look at the God of revival. In Jesus' name, amen. That's the focus of today's message, looking at James chapter 1, verse 17, really focusing in on James' words when he says, That the Father of lights is one with whom there is no variation, no shifting shadow. Uh, Which is just another way of talking about the fact that God is undiminished in His attributes. That with God there there, there, there is no change. Malachi says that very thing. There is, the Lord changes not. And so what I want to do is, I want to, meditate today on the God of revival. That's what we've been talking about is personal renewal, personal revival. And I thought there could be no greater kindling for our hearts. There could be no richer fuel for our souls in terms of personal revival, personal renewal, spiritual growth than a deep, sustained contemplation, meditation, and study of the nature and of the character of God. An impossible task in 45 minutes. But a worthy endeavor nonetheless if we understand what we stand to gain by looking at and meditating on and focusing on the nature and the character of God. This is what is wrong with the wicked, according to David. Psalm 36, verses 1 through 4, it is because they do not know God as He is that they flatter themselves with their sin. I mean, listen to the way that David thinks about this. Transgression speaks to the ungodly in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. 
He has ceased to do what is wise and to do good. He plans wickedness on his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. What is the root? That's the fruit that is all around us. What is the root? The root is that they have no fear of God in their eyes. They don't know who God is, what He is like. They don't contemplate the consequences of their sin because they have no capacity to esteem a holy God, no capacity to think of God as He is. But as Psalm 36 goes on to say, David understood what was the answer, and this is the answer, Psalm 36 uh, verse 9, with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. The reason why people are shrouded in darkness is because they are not in God's light. They do not see Him as He is. And therefore, for us to explore the attributes of God, the nature of God, the character of God, is for the good of our own soul. So that we will understand where does the fountain of life reside? Where is true life to be found? How is it that we can dwell in the light? It is only by being with Him who is light. But today in the church, it is a very sad thing to know that books on the character and on the attributes of God are at an all-time low. People don't want to do lengthy dissertations on the nature and character of God. I don't know if you're aware of where it is that you can go on Amazon to find the greatest, the best, without question, indisputable, where it is that you will find a study on the attributes and the character of God, what is the seminal resource that you can go to? What is the greatest thing ever written on the subject of the nature and character of God? Some of you bookworms may know what I'm talking about. But most Christians don't. And I'm referring to a book. And the book is entitled The Existence and Attributes of God by Stephen Sharnock, 1700s. It is a thousand pages of scaling one Mount Everest after another of the attributes of God. Layer after layer, wave after wave, a tsunami, a virtual flood of the person and of the character and of the nature of God. You could probably read five pages at a time. It is so dense. It is so rich. It is so life-changing. I have a friend, he's read it twice. And he says after every time he reads the book, after every time he's read the book, at the end of it, he just, he curls up in a ball and he just sobs. After a lengthy, sustained contemplation of the character and the, the, the nature of Almighty God, today in the church, God's infinite nature is not esteemed. Listen, it is because of the influence of liberalism. Don't, don't, don't be mistaken. It is because of the influence of liberalism that society has called for a manageable God. We want a containable God. We want a God that is reasonable. 
We, we, we want a God that is pliable, that changes with the times, and that adapts to our lifestyle. They want a God that will make a safe place for everybody, despite the way they choose to live. But dear friends, the attributes of God are not up for debate. God reveals himself to us the way that he is, not the way that we want him to be. Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Now you know that James chapter 1 is just a launching point, right? Exodus chapter 3, beginning of verse 13. Because it was in the dismal captivity of Egyptian oppression that the self-disclosure of God comes blazing to the, to the surface in Moses' encounter with God. And this is what happens. Exodus 3, verse 13. Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. They will say of me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Yahweh said to Moses, I am who I am. Echieh esher echieh, the Hebrew. It just means, I am who I am. (laughs) I am that I am. I am what I am. And he said, Thus you will say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, don't stop at verse 14. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you will say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Watch this. God is very particular about this. This is my name forever. You see that? This is my memorial name to all generations. What is God saying there? What God is saying is, my nature and character is not up for debate. It doesn't matter how postmodern your world gets. It doesn't matter how saturated in idolatry you may have become. Now let's look forward a thousand years, or at least a thousand years, to Assyria, to Babylon. It doesn't matter how syncretistic your religion becomes. Meaning, Israel would become so syncretistic, meaning they would, they would mix the worship of false gods with the worship of the real God, mangle them together to the point where God, according to Hosea, is no longer distinguishable from Baal. This is how perverted things get in a world where people forget the self-existing, self-revealing, self-sufficient, eternal God. I am who I am. Two things from this text. Number one, this self-disclosure to Moses reveals number one, 
The God of eternity is also the God that has intruded into history. Why do we say that? He goes from, I am who I am, meaning ever existing, never becoming, never entering into being, always being. This is what theologians call the aseity of God. Ase comes from the Latin word that just means from self. God is from himself. God is. And we have to simply deal with the ramifications of this self-existing, self-asserting, self-disclosing, self-sustaining, self-sufficient, all-perfect, all-majestic, all-powerful, all-knowing God. And I think what's happening today is we want a little compartmentalized God that changes with our fickle little times that we live in. We want a God that follows us on social media, watches our YouTube channel, and likes us on Facebook. We want a cute little pretty God that we can fit in our little back pocket as we go along with our own personal ambitions. Is it any wonder society is so absolutely blind to where life really resides? It's exactly what David is saying. And it's exactly why God revealed himself to Moses. Number one, God is eternal, and the God of eternity has broken into history. And why do I say that? I am who I am, but then he furthermore says to Moses, I am the God of your fathers. There is redemptive history right there. I am the God that broke in on Abraham. (laughs) Pagan, blind, sinner, and there he was, Mesopotamia, beyond the Euphrates and the Ur of Chaldees. There he was, blind to the greatness of God. And God sovereignly picks up this pagan wanderer and reveals himself, breaks in on Abraham. And at one point, remember Abraham's in the tents, I think he's in Wherever he's at, I don't want to get it wrong, but he's in the tent somewhere. Okay, that's not the focus of the sermon. But God calls him out of the tent. He calls him out and he says, Abraham, look up. Those astral bodies up there that you're used to worshiping, all of those stars, they don't represent your pagan little figurines that you're cutting out of wood and stone. What those stars represent is my covenant faithfulness to a thousand generations through Jesus Christ who will come through your loins. They're covenant stars. That's what they were. So he reveals himself to him and he sovereignly imposes himself onto Abraham. He is the God of of eternity. He is the God of history. Second, it also reveals to us The greatest thing that Israel could know about God was his nature and his character. It wasn't just that Israel needed to know what God told Moses. Listen to this now. They needed to know the God of Moses. We don't just need religious information. You want to talk about personal revival? 
We don't just need data. We need Him. And you will be able to tell where you are spiritually, mature or immature, on the basis of whether you have actual communion with God or whether or not you are like a computer just assimilating information. Because you are a human made in the image of God, able to know God, relate to God, able to have a relationship with God. That is what you were created for. That is what, that is what religion is all about. I know God personally. I don't need a priest. I don't need any other mediation. In Christ, I have a mediator, the God-man, Christ Jesus. He is my only mediator between God and man. He is the one. He is the bridge. He is the link. He is the reconciliation between God and man. And so, my dear friends, all of that is introduction. Here's my first point. I want to contemplate four attributes of God. Not necessarily because I thought these were the most important. How do you even begin to talk about which one is most important in God? Theologians tell us God is a simple being. Do you know what that means? It doesn't mean he's elementary or something. When theologians say God is simple, what that means is that God is not a composite of various components. God is what he is all at once and in total fullness. It is not as if God is love and that is his essence and every attribute is attached to that essence. No, my dear friends, that is not the picture that Scripture gives us of God. God is not a composite of different parts. God is what He is in totality. And therefore, it's difficult for us to think of one attribute being more important than the other. So here is an attribute, and here's the lesson I think goes with it, okay? Number one, the God of revival is sovereign. This is the lesson. The sovereignty of God saves us and produces humility in us. Now turn with me in a very important scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I think it's important for us to ground all of this in a passage where both of these things are true. Number one, sovereignty of God saves us and then it produces humility in us. Let's begin there. God saves us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 for consider your calling, brethren. That is, uh, that is not saying consider your career. <laughs> That's not what he's talking about. When he says consider your calling, brethren, that's not saying consider your vocation. Consider what you feel called to life. No, 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 no. Consider your calling, meaning consider what you have been called by God to. This is a redemptive calling, an effectual calling, a summoning to actual salvation. He says, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. (laughs) In other words, the church does not consist of the brightest people in the world. This is not a slam. Don't get offended. But he's just making a statement. God doesn't just save people with a high IQ. Right? He may increase your IQ over time. (laughs) 
But if you were anything like I was when I got saved, I would be tempted to think God saves the lowest IQs in the world. But he doesn't save the highest IQ. Not many mighty, not many noble. He doesn't just save people of great repute, politicians, kings, presidents, emperors, those types of things, warriors, captains, generals, people in authority. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That's such a profound statement, is it not? God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. In other words, this helps us to understand that God chose us not on the basis of anything good in us, not on the basis of any merit that we have. As a matter of fact, the sovereignty of God points us in the direction that God not only saves people who have no merit, God saves people who in fact have accumulated infinite demerit. You're in the red with God. You're not neutral. You're negative. You have a debt hanging over your head that was too large to overcome, to pay off, or to pay back. That's why Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 4, that God saved Abraham not according to works as if, as if it was his payment, wages, as if God paid him back what he owed him. No, 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 no. God doesn't pay us back for anything because guess what? We have nothing to offer him. Nothing. All we have to offer him is demerit, guilt, sin, iniquity, law-breaking, all of those things. Look at verse 30. But by his doing, this is where sovereignty comes in. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And if that's not specific enough, let's get into the particulars. Who became to us. Wisdom from God. Now, how did Christ Jesus become wisdom to us from God? Answer, union with Christ. By virtue of your union with Jesus Christ, you have received the wisdom of God. By virtue of your union with Christ, you have received, watch this, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that, this is a big purpose clause. What's the purpose? What was the reason? So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know what the sovereignty of God does? Is it makes you humble, or at least it should, when we really stop to contemplate what the sovereignty of God is for. My dear friends, I know we've all been there, but really, the sovereignty of God is not for controversy. The sovereignty of God is not to debate people. The sovereignty of God is really not intended so that Arminians and Calvinists can go at it online in endless chat, you know, channels or situations or endless, you know, forums and, you know, where some 36-year-old living in the basement of his mom's house is, you know, quoting James White. 
That's not what the sovereignty of God is for, my dear friends. The sovereignty of God is in order to show us that we have nothing in ourselves to boast in. We should, if we genuinely understood the sovereignty of God operative in our lives, we should be walking around as broken-hearted, grateful people, knowing that we had nothing to give, nothing to offer, and that God, freely of His grace, He saved us. Think about that. How humbling it is to know. How humbling it is to know that the sovereign God of the universe, I think I figured it out. This thing was loose. God is sovereign over that too. It's humbling to know that the God who is sovereign over everything, my dear friends, chose to come into a communion bond with you, chose to align himself with you, chose to allow you to become a partaker of his divine love, to enter into intimate fellowship with his son Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1.9, who chose to lavish upon us the riches of his grace, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7. In a world where everybody is trying to shape the course of history, the sovereignty of God reminds us what the purpose of history is. And it is not that we would be at the center of it. It's that God is at the center of all things. He deserves the credit. He deserves the glory. You get how it works? The sovereignty of God, it, it humbles us. It saves us and it humbles us. That's what it does. Now, attribute number two, because as always, I was looking at this and thinking, boy, I could just do a whole series. This is a series within a series, yet again, because the attributes of God are that extensive. But here's the second thing. The God of revival is not only sovereign, but the God of revival is also holy. And what is the lesson to be learned from the holiness of God? Here it is. The holiness of God sanctifies us and produces purity in us. That is what the holiness of God should do. Now turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 is important because it reminds us that over the course of redemptive history, from beginning to end, once again, the character and the nature of God does not change. Laws may change positive law. There was a point in time where you couldn't eat what you're about to eat after service. There was a point in time where you could not have that piece of lobster. You couldn't eat that piece of bacon. Oh, I love, don't you love bacon? Thank God for the new covenant. Positive law may change. Civil law can come and go. Dietary laws can be enforced and retracted. But the moral quality of the lawgiver never changes. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. By the way, I always try to point this out, but ignorance in the Bible is not a virtue, and ignorance in the Bible is not synonymous with innocence. To be ignorant is not a good thing in the Bible. To be ignorant means 
it, it, to be ignorant is essentially speaking of spiritual blindness, spiritual deadness. You were irresponsive to the knowledge of God. You were dead in your sin and your misery, and you were blind, and you were ignorant to the truth. But like the Holy One, you see that there? Who called you, be holy yourself in all of your behavior because as it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And there, Peter is taking us back to Leviticus. And people think, well, what does Leviticus have to do with my life? Remember the president in one of his speeches said, what are they going to do, quote Leviticus or something? Yeah, we are going to quote Leviticus. And we're going to quote Numbers and Deuteronomy and Exodus. and We're going to quote the whole counsel of God. Because the whole counsel of God reveals to us that God does not change. And that's why we are to be imitators of God in all of our conduct. If we are to be holy, even as God is holy, we are to imitate Him. And so what Peter is doing here is he's saying, look, the God of Leviticus 11, Leviticus 9, 19, Leviticus 20, this God is the same God today. He has never changed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forevermore. Our times may change. Your zeal may change. Your intimacy may change. Your prayer life may change. Your family may change. Your acquaintances may change. Your church may change. Your theology might change. But God does not change. What this means is that we have to reckon with him. You may not like it, and oh, when I wasn't a Christian, I didn't like it. I didn't like to hear about a holy, righteous, infinitely holy God, pure. I didn't like to hear about that because I wanted to be the master of my own ship. The, 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 you know, I wanted to be the captain of my own ship, the master of my own universe, whatever you want to call it. I wanted to be in charge. But at the revelation of the holiness of God, my dear friends, I'll remind you, Luke chapter 5, verse 8, flesh trembles. When you get a glimpse of the holiness of God, Isaiah chapter 6, what did Isaiah do? He began to self-deprecate. I'm ruined. I'm lost. My, my lip, my, my mouth. No. The people around me. Oh, No. Crisis. I tell folks during evangelism, I always use 9 11 as a, something of a comparison to tell them it's kind of like 9 11. People are waltzing into those buildings, sipping on their latte, heading up the escalator, up the elevator, going up 150 stories. Little do they know, in a very short while, perhaps right after they've logged in, pull up the chair to the office, pull up the chair to the desk, began to their initial conversation or their initial deal online or whatever it is they're doing. In a very short while, those people are leaping to their death from 150 stories, many of them with bodies already on fire. Hell is multiplying that to an infinite degree. You are not leaping out of a building we should say to sinners, you're not leaping out of a building, a sky rise. You're leaping into a Christless eternity. 
The holiness of God is that attribute of God that dignifies every other aspect of God. Think of it. God is omnipotent, right? Oh, but the holiness of God ensures us that God's omnipotence is holy. It is a holy power, a holy omnipotence, not like the God of the pagans, not like the God of the nations, not like the gods of Greek mythology that often used their power to commit acts of treason or they, they, they betrayed the other gods in the cosmos. No, 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 no. God's power is holy power. God's righteousness is holy righteousness. God's sovereignty is holy sovereignty. God's immutability is holy immutability. He does not change, and the God that remains the same is a holy God. Turn with me to 1 John, please. Because I said, not only does it sanctify us, it sets us apart, in other words, but it also produces purity in us, or it ought to. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from Him and announced to you. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Now, how are you going to read the Gospels now? That's what He's referring to. The message that we have heard, watch this, from Him. That's talking about the incarnate Christ. And so John summarizes the, the ministry of Jesus on earth as a ministry where Jesus revealed to them something of the holiness of God. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and yet we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. There's no greater assurance that you are cleansed by the blood. There's no greater assurance that you actually belong in the society of the saints than that you walk in the light as He is in the light. Isn't that remarkable? Number three. Not only contemplation of the holiness of God, but also contemplation of the benevolence of God, the goodness of God. And this is the lesson. The benevolence of God blesses us and produces gratitude in us. First, do you know that God is good? Many people don't. Many people are still unpersuaded. Even in the church, I'm talking about the church. Many believers are unpersuaded that God is good. They, they know they must agree that God is good. But many people do not know that God is good. They do not believe that God is good. How? Just look at what happens to us when we undergo a trial. When we undergo suffering. When we lose a loved one, a mother, a father, a child. When we go through excruciating trial, one of the very first attributes of God that we are tempted to undermine is the benevolence of God. How can a good God allow this to happen to me? And this is why 
We need to know God is good in everything that He does. As a matter of fact, the psalmist declared, David declared, he says, Lord, he says, you are my Lord. I have no good beside you. See, the psalmist understood what Jesus went on to say. No one is good except for God. And the psalmist knows that. And the psalmist understands the only thing that is good about me, my life, or anything that I can conceive of is that I have some sort of connection to the good God of infinite goodness, infinite blessedness. Every aspect of his life is good. Every aspect of his being is good. Stephen Sharnock, that's the book I told you about. Listen to what he says. God only is infinite goodness, a boundless goodness that knows no limits, a goodness as infinite as his essence, not only good, but best, not only good, but goodness itself, the supreme inconceivable goodness. The goodness of God is the measure and the rule of goodness in everything else. We don't know goodness apart from the goodness of God. God is good in salvation. Psalm 86, verse 5, For you, O Lord, are good, and you are ready to forgive. You are abundant in loving kindness to everyone who calls upon you. You want to know the goodness of God? Taste and see that the goodness of God. Call on Him so as to be saved. God is good in deeds. You are good in, and you do good. <laughs> That's not hard, right? That's not hard to memorize or to teach it to your kids. Sweetheart, God is good and he does good. Well, what about, kids are real smart. What about all those terrible things that happen? What about all those judgments that God brings? Are those good too? The psalmist says, all your judgments are righteous and true. God is also good practically in provision and providence. Psalm 104, verse 28. You give to them, they gather it up, all creation, all people, all things. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. They are satisfied with good. We may also think about the goodness of God when we, th when we stop for a minute and we think about the backdrop of the sinful world in which we live. Think about it. We live in a world full of sin, dysfunction, disaster, disability. All of that tends to obscure the goodness of God for people, but really it's only because of a lack of perspective. The backdrop of our fallen world should only magnify the goodness of God even more when we consider the fact that God alone is truly good. Then our next thought should be that man does not deserve the goodness of God. When we see a car wreck on the side of the road, we sh our first inclination should not be to doubt the goodness of God, but to give thanks to a good God that we did not crash. That's the way we should think. That's the way they hit Jesus up. Remember? Hey, Jesus, what about those people that died in that tragedy? Remember? That tower, that big tower, it fell on everybody. Those people were just enjoying their day. They didn't do anything wrong. Why did that have to happen to them? Or, the, or, or remember when Pilate, he, he, he killed those, 
those nice people and mingled their blood with sacrifices. Explain those abominable things. How does Jesus answer? He doesn't begin to try to explain away God. (laughs) He says, in essence, God is so good. You want to challenge me in terms of theodicy, the problem of God and evil. God is so good that unless you repent, you will perish in a similar way. That's how good God is. So don't push back on the goodness of God, lest God show you just how good He really is. The Bible says He's a pure eyes to look on iniquity. He cannot dwell in the presence of sin. He's a consuming fire that one, one day will incinerate all evil wherever it is found. And so the goodness of God should cause us to be thankful, to give thanks. Psalm 100 says, shout joyfully to the Lord. This is the whole psalm. All the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name for the Lord is good. And His loving kindness is everlasting. His faithfulness to all generations, even this generation right here. We are recipients of the unfathomable goodness of God. Just think of it. There you were in your sin and your misery. Whether you were a self-righteous little kid in church that thought, I'm good enough because I've got Christian parents and I go to church and I do all the stuff that Christians do, stand up, sit down, read this, sing that. Whether you're that self-righteous sort of little pharisaical heart or you were that outright licentious, lecherous sinner that lived in the excess of his own depravity and you indulged in every terrible nightmare under the sun and you stood like a whistler in the dark on the precipice of eternal ruin and God had mercy on you. Time and again as you drove home drunk that night, as you went to bed where you should not have, as you woke up where you shouldn't have been, as you did what you shouldn't have done, God had, God, he he withheld the dam of his wrath and allowed you to live another day, to eat your mother's food, to, 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 to watch sports the next day. He allowed you to go to work and make money to put food on the table. He allowed you to go to your favorite restaurant, listen to music, enjoy a good tune. He allowed you to breathe his air and walk on his earth. When you deserved nothing but the wrath of an infinite God. Think of the goodness of God. It will take your breath away. Last attribute. This is good news for us, folks. Well, that's a double-edged sword, is it not? Depending on where you're standing. The God of revival is not only sovereign, not only holy, not only good, but He is also immutable. Immutable. And what is the lesson? 
The, immutab the immutability of God grounds us and produces assurance in us. Isn't that true? Oh, our lives change. There's one thing that we know very well as people in this world is change. Change is encouraged. Barack Obama got elected on the mantra of change, as far as I'll go with that. Technology, if it is not changing, people become disinterested. Fashions change. Trends change. Everything, you change. Your health changes. Your family changes. Your acquaintance changes. People in the church change. Pastors change. They come. They go. Friends come in. They go out. Family members, friends, neighbors, they live, they die. We are in a world of change. But there is one constant reality that never changes, and that is God in all of His realities. And so, therefore, we should take great comfort in that. We should find our rest in that. That despite, let's talk about our spiritual condition. Our spiritual condition rises and falls. Our spiritual progress may go up and may go down. Our prayer life may increase, it may decrease. Our love for God can ebb and flow because of our sinful weakness. The intensity of our, ze of our zeal is like a faucet. We can go from hot to cold to lukewarm, back to hot, back to cold. It changes, our zeal changes with our optimism many times. Our hope rises and falls along with our aspirations, our personal ambitions, what we fulfilled and what we wanted to do and did not get to do. It changes with our temporal dreams, what we want out of this life, here and now. The God of revival remains the immutable rock of ages. And guess what? That rock that immutable God, that never-changing God, He calls us back to His faithful self so that we can find our repose in Him, our rest. Again, another theologian, Herman Baving, says this on this doctrine. The doctrine of God's immutability is the highest significance for religion. The contrast between, between being and becoming marks the difference between the creator and the creature. Every creature is continually becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving, seeks rest and satisfaction, and finds this rest in God and in Him alone, for only He is pure being, never becoming. Hence, in the Scripture, God is often called the rock. And the Bible calls us to build our life on the rock. Stephen Sharnock again says, There is not one perfection that may be said to be and truly is immutable. None of... He says, none of them will appear so glorious without this beam, this sun of immutability, which renders them highly excellent without the least shadow of imperfection. He says, how cloudy will his blessedness be if it were changeable? How dim his wisdom if it can be obscured? How feeble his power if, if it were capable of being sickly or languished? How would mercy lose its luster if it could be changed into wrath? How, and justice 
much of its dread if it could be turned into mercy, while the object of justice remains unfit for mercy, and one that has need of mercy continues only fit for the divine fury. But changelessness is a thread that runs through the whole web. It is the enamel of the rest. None of them without it could look with a triumphant aspect. His power is unchangeable. One thousand pages like that. And today, I would challenge you to find a a book on the attributes of God that goes beyond 200. We want a quick read. We want a quick God. We want a shallow God, a brief God. We want a cliff note God. We want a, a God, a drive through God. We want an instant God. We want a microwave God. But if you rake, you only get leaves. If you dig, you get these diamonds of who God is. And brothers and sisters, to summarize for us, this is, what this, this is what the character of God is. This is what the attributes of God do for us. The sovereignty of God saves us and it produces humility in us. The holiness of God sanctifies us and it produces purity in us. The benevolence of God blesses us and it produces gratitude in us. The immutability of God grounds us in an insane world that is shifting and full of quicksand. It grounds us and it produces assurance in us again. This is to say nothing of His omnipotence. This is to say nothing of His omnipresence. This is to say nothing of His aseity. This is to say nothing of His wrath, nothing of His justice. That I leave to you to explore. And I promise you, I can make you this promise that as you dig down deep into the attributes of God, oh, you will come to say with Job, these are just the edges of his ways. You have just begun to scratch the surface of that which you will explore for all of eternity. Boundless, endless, Finally, let's get real here with Job. I, I just, I went to Job because I thought, okay, here is a man stripped of all superficiality. He has nothing left. And so I want to hear, what does somebody who has been reduced to that level of humanity have to say about God. Job 26, 7 through 14. Let's close with that. This is a man who suffered greatly, knew God deeply, and was revived by what he found. Job 26, 7. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, and the cloud does not burst under them. He obscures the face of the full moon and spreads his cloud over it. He has inscribed a circle over the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. 
He quieted the sea with his power, and by his understanding he shattered Rahab. By his breath the heavens are cleared. By his hand, his hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are the fringes of his ways. Oh, and how faint a word we hear of him, but his mighty thunder, who can understand? This is a man who was overwhelmed with the greatness of God, and he loved it. He relished it. It sustained him. It empowered him to live until chapter 42, until providence changed. He does not bring complaint after complaint after complaint after complaint. If you want fodder, if you want fuel, if you want kindling for being spiritually revived, I can tell you to do nothing better than to prayerfully meditate on the greatness and the glory and the character and the attributes of an infinite God. Father, I stand, Lord, I stand up here thinking to myself, here is the finite, (laughs) here is the small trying to give some grass, some description, some color of the infinite, the greatness, the largeness of God. And Lord, I agree with Job. These are the fringes of your ways. These are just the edges of who you are. We just hear a faint little whisper of who you are. Oh God, but would you whisper even more into our ears. Open up your word to us, Lord. Reveal yourself in all of your greatness, your glory, so that we can be people that truly, truly can say we know our God. We've contemplated our God. We've meditated on our God. We have been overwhelmed by our God. And because of that, our souls have been revived. We pray that you will do this for us and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.